0: Our text today is from Matthew chapter 21 as we continue our verse by verse study through Matthew's gospel, hear God's holy word. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the preservation of this word. We thank you that we can read it today. So give us your spirit, the same spirit who inspired your son, filled your son, Jesus, the same spirit who inspired Matthew to write these things. Fill us with that same spirit to hear and to receive and to obey everything that you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What if you showed up to your place of business on a Monday morning without any notice, without any warning, you saw an under new management banner over the front door, plastered very large on the front of the building. You would ask, what happened over the weekend? What is going on? Do I even have a job anymore? Many years ago, something similar to that happened to me When I was in the corporate world, I arrived at a Monday morning sales meeting and there were all these guys there who had $200 haircuts and tailored suits that I'd never met before. And I found out I had new bosses. I had new people to answer to. And I know that similar thing has happened to some of you before. Uh, You have new expectations and a new way of doing business and a new way to do your work. And when that happens, you want to know, well, who do I answer to? Who do I go to with a problem? Uh, I've got to start over and figure out how to... Understand what these people expect of me, but most importantly, I want to know who is in charge here. What is happening? In Matthew chapter 21, the temple authorities are responding to Jesus as if he has taken it upon himself to abruptly walk into the temple and plaster an under new management sign on the front gates, that he has declared himself the new boss, that he's walked right up into the CEO's office and, and planted himself in the chair of the CEO. That's how they're responding. Well, prior to this, just prior to this, as we read last time, Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem very much like the new boss, like the new king, riding a regal donkey, just like David, just like Solomon before him. Multitudes have lined the road to praise him. They've thrown their coats on the ground before him. They've waved palm branches, that symbol of Jewish liberation, Jewish independence. They've waved those palm branches as he he goes into the city. And Jesus went straight into town, directly into the temple courtyard, turned over the tables of the money changers and those who sold doves, and interrupted the daily business of the temple. And he rebuked them sharply for treating the temple like a den of political zealots, like this enclave of reactionaries and revolutionaries, rather than living out their mission to be a house of prayer for all nations. And while he was there, Jesus healed the blind and he healed the lame while children sang his praises. And now he's back on another day after this and he's taken it upon himself to teach in the temple. Well, this this wrinkles the authorities. Just who does he think he is coming in here, knocking over the furniture and starting a children's choir? We didn't authorize this. We didn't say he could do it. what authority are you doing these things, they ask him. Who gave you this authority? Well, they assume that he's a usurper. They assume that he's an unfaithful son, and this has been the accusation against Jesus. He doesn't keep their traditions. But over the course of these conversations, we are going to learn that these chief priests, these elders at the temple, they are the impostors. They have not been faithful with what has been entrusted to them. They are the disobedient sons. They are the usurpers. Where are we in Matthew's Gospel? We are right at the beginning of a very long day for the Lord Jesus. Uh, This this day runs from chapter 21 to chapter 25. And just to help you uh, understand the, the timeline, by my calculation, this is on Tuesday of the week that Jesus is crucified. So he comes into the city on Sunday. He's back here in the temple on Tuesday teaching. Probably Monday is when he cursed the fig tree. He's back in the temple on Tuesday. He's going to be betrayed Thursday night. He's going to be crucified Friday, and he's going to come out of the grave on Sunday. So so between uh, the Palm Sunday and between his betrayal on Thursday, between then, he spends time teaching at the temple. And Matthew 21 through 25 is one long discourse of teaching where he's fielding challenges by the authorities, where he takes his men outside of the city and stands on a hill overlooking the city and he prepares his apostles for what is going to happen to the city and what's gonna happen to the temple within that generation. So that's where we are. So he begins this day in the temple, teaching. And as Jesus does, he always teaches with authority, and uh, people take notice of his boldness and his confidence in his teaching. And that's when he receives this challenge from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Who are they? Where do they come from? Well, these uh, chief priests and elders of the people would have been the high priest, Caiaphas, who he's going to Uh, meet again later, Caiaphas and all of his assistants and all the priests on duty whose job it was to serve at the temple, as well as the captain of the temple. The captain of the temple is there to keep order. The captain will arrest anybody who violates the peace and the order of the temple. And then perhaps there are another 150 or so daily priests, duty priests, who are there in charge of the gates and the keys and the doors and Uh, guarding the collection. So the point is, these are not our old friends, the Pharisees, who have shown up repeatedly through the gospel. These are not the scribes. It's a different group of people. These are the ones who are keeping order at the temple. These are the ones who are in charge of the temple itself. Now, most of the priests, remember, are Sadducees. They're theological liberals. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. These are the ones who come to Jesus and ask, who do you think you are? Who gave you the permission to do everything that you're doing? You didn't come talk to us first before you started knocking over tables. You didn't get a permit to teach in the the temple. And by the way, when you teach, you don't quote the rabbis like the rest of us do. You don't quote tradition. Again, who do you think you are? And Jesus, as he so often does, he answers their question with a question. If you answer my question, Jesus says, then I'll answer yours. You tell me the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Now this question is a trap. Uh, He is provoking them by this question to condemn themselves by their answer. And they reason among themselves, Matthew says. I get the image of them all huddling tightly together with their heads in a a circle, like, how are we gonna answer this? What are we gonna say? Is he still watching? Yeah, he's still watching. He's looking for an answer. How are we gonna get out of this? Matthew says, they say, they reason among themselves, if we answer from heaven, John's baptism was from heaven, he will say to us, why didn't you believe him? If John's baptism was ordained by God, why didn't you believe him? But... If we say the baptism was from men, we fear the multitude, for everyone thinks John was a prophet. The people are going to hate us if we say that John's baptism came from men because John was really popular with the people. Now listen to what they're doing. They're basing their answer to Jesus' question upon a calculation of how they think the answer is going to be received. They're not looking for the correct response. They're not asking what is true. No, they're looking for the safe answer, not the true answer, the safe answer, the politically correct answer. And by the way, Jesus is not asking them something that's outside of their expertise. This is not outside of their jurisdiction to answer. These are the men who are in charge of regulating the worship at the temple. When you come for cleansing to the temple, These are the men who direct you through the cleansing ceremonies. They know what baptism is and what it is intended to do. They know all about it. It's their job. And so they ought to be able to say with a high degree of confidence whether or not John's washing his cleansing of baptism was pleasing to God or whether it was not. It's their job to make these kinds of judgments. And yet, instead of taking a position, they display this kind of benign, passive, non-committal agnosticism. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you can't answer my question, then I don't owe you any answers to your question. Now, Jesus keeps pressing Whoever asks the questions is controlling the conversation. You always remember that. that If you're asking, the person asking the questions is controlling the conversation. So they come to him asking questions and Jesus flips it right back around and he's asking them questions. And he asks him another question by way of a parable. I've got a story for you, he says, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Now I'm gonna stop before they answer. You know their answer. You've read this before. But let's just think about this question for ourselves for just a moment, as if this is the first time we've ever heard this, as if this is the first time we've read it without any of our presuppositions or anything, just ignoring their answer for a moment. Put yourself in the position of the father. You have two sons, And you say to the first son, I need you to work today. And your son says, Dad, you gotta be kidding me, asking me to work today. I've got other things to do. Jump in a lake, Dad. Go kick rocks. I'm not working. I'm not doing it. It's a high-handed, defiant, rebellious response. He says, I will not. Now that son later regrets his nasty reply, and he goes to work. The second son, when the father says, son, I need you to go work today, the second son says, I go, sir. What what a sweet boy. What What a really respectful, obedient boy. He really honors his father. I go, sir. There's so much respect there. And yet, he doesn't go to the field. He wanders off. He meets up with his friends, but he doesn't go to the work. So that's the scenario. Now the question is, which... Son does the will of the father. Which of these two boys would you be proud of? Which of the sons is a respectful, faithful, obedient son, well pleasing to you? What, which one? Neither of them, neither of them are good boys. We would tolerate the response of neither son. Don't don't we say, didn't you say to your kids, delayed obedience is no obedience? Don't you say something like that? Don't you say, obey all the way, the right way, with a happy heart? Don't you say things like that? Which of those two sons does that? Neither of them, neither of them. It is not righteous to disrespect your father no matter what you do afterward. Can you imagine saying to your son, hey, Buddy, I need you to uh, mow the grass today. And he says, jump in a lake. I'm not doing that. And then 20 minutes later, you hear the lawnmower running. We think, well, you know, maybe he's doing it, but I'm still not happy. I'm still not happy about this. We still have something to correct. We still have something to fix. So that's not righteous, to disrespect your father, no matter what you go do afterwards. Likewise, it is not righteous to draw near to your father with your lips. I go, sir, and then... Your heart is far from him, and you're plotting disobedience. Even while you say, I go, sir, you never intend to go. You never intend to do what he asks you to do. So these two sons are examples of two different kinds of disobedience toward our heavenly Father. The disobedience of the first says, I really don't care to show any respect to the Father. I really don't need to come before his presence and worship. I don't need to pay any attention to his word. His word isn't authoritative. His word has no power. His word is meaningless. I don't care. I don't care about the scriptures. I don't care about the Bible. I don't care what he says. And uh, it, it, it doesn't have anything for me. It doesn't have anything for my life. I'll go out later and I'll do what I want to when I feel like it. And if I feel like it, and if I feel like doing something, I'll do it, but I'll do it on my own time and I'm gonna do it my own way. A great many people in this country who call themselves Christians are just like this. They don't have any respect, they don't have any time for the body of Christ. They just can't fit worship into their schedule. They don't know the first thing about the Bible. They don't know what God requires of them. And on occasion, when they come to church, they they aren't listening, they aren't participating, their mind is elsewhere. But still, they somehow have in their head, they're convincing themselves that they're doing the the Lord's work and they're doing what's pleasing to Him. Well, they're self-deceived, they're deluded, and they dishonor the Lord by their actions and by their deeds and by their words. Then there are those like the second son who do pay lip service to the father, who take vows and pledge and promises, and they say all the right things, and they know how to give all the right answers, but deep in their heart, they don't take any of this seriously. Deep in their heart, it's all a joke. How, how often have you experienced this, this spiritual coldness, this spiritual deadness, and You come to worship and you pray the prayers and you sing the psalms and you hear the word and with even some degree of sincerity, you may say, "Ah, you know what? I I really do need to get my life sorted out and there are things that I'm doing that I must stop doing. There are things that I'm not doing that I must start doing and it starts today. Okay, all right, I'm convinced. uh, I've got to. I, I go, sir. I know, Lord, you're calling me to do the right thing. I go, sir. But then all of your resolve and all of your dedication doesn't make it, it doesn't make it past the parking lot. It's all, it's all dissolved. It all dissipates by the, time you, by the time you leave. Promises are no substitute for performance. We, we get to become experts at convincing ourselves and everybody else around us how we're going to change, and we produce all these detailed plans for how we're going to get straightened out and how we're going to obey, but it all means nothing if there's no obedience. So two different ways of disobeying the Father. The point is that neither of these sons, neither of them are entirely faithful. Neither of them honor their father with both their words and their actions. The father is due respect and he's due obedience. Our heavenly father seeks people who will say, I go, sir, with sincerity and with enthusiasm and then go do what they pledge to do. That's what the Lord is looking for. People who hear and obey. So this parable is another trap that Jesus has set for them. Which did the will of the Father? That's what Jesus asked. And they said to him, the first, the one who said, I'm not going, I will not go, and who did. Well, they didn't huddle this time, This one seemed obvious. They are excited to be able to answer a question for once. And on a purely pragmatic level, you can say, well, I understand why you would answer this way. The son who went to do the work, at least he did something. He's still got to repent of the disrespect, but at least he made some effort. In all their excitement, they don't realize that their answer just now, that just damned them. That just discredited them. Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You were not like that first son. The tax collectors and the harlots heard the preaching of John. They repented and they obeyed they heard the voice of the Father, they said, I go, sir, and they went and they were faithful. They were the best of both words. These people that you despise, the harlots and the tax collectors, they heard and obeyed. They promised and followed through on the promise. Now the chief priests just declared that the son who said no, but who later obeyed, did the will of the Father. And yet, they didn't even do that. They didn't obey back at first, back with John, they said, I will not go. But when they saw the belief of the sinners and the harlots and the tax collectors and the outsiders, not even that drove them to repentance. So these chief priests and these elders of the temple, they're not like either son. They said no, and they didn't repent. They they said, I will not. And then later when they had the opportunity to change their mind, they still stayed away from the father's vineyard. You see, Jesus says, you're doubly disobedient. You're the worst of both worlds. Uh, before they can catch their breath, though, Jesus keeps the heat on them with another parable. He tells another story, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one killed one and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to him. Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now Jesus is drawing a picture here that everybody would have instantly recognized the landowner plants a vineyard. Vineyards are everywhere in this part of the world. They come up all over the place in the Bible. This was a good land for growing vines. This was a good land for growing grapes and a good place to make wine. And this is, these vineyards are a symbol of the wealth and the fruitfulness of the land. Vineyards give you wine, which you must use. Wine is used in worship and it's used in rest. And it, you, it brings you celebration and all kinds of joy. So if you have land that's suitable for it, you're gonna put in a vineyard. You're gonna do this. And that vineyard is not only an investment, but it's a prized possession. So the vineyard that Jesus describes in this story, I don't want you to think of it as a little, you know, kind of your backyard, uh, tomato cucumber garden. You know, this isn't a little pea patch. This is a this is acres and acres of vines. This is a massive operation that Jesus describes here. Uh, think of how he describes it. He puts a hedge around it. You want a thick hedge of thorny bushes all around the vineyard to keep out the deer, keep out the wild boars. Uh, you want to keep children out of there and vandals who would come in and spoil. Your vines, he dug a wine press in the vineyard so you can process the grapes and you can turn it to wine right there. You don't have to harvest the grapes and haul them off somewhere else to process it and make wine. You do it right there. And he built a tower. The tower is a shelter for the men who work the vineyard, but you can also store your implements, you can store your tools in there. You can also climb up in the tower to oversee the whole operation, see if everybody's working the way they ought to work, see if there are any threats from the outside. Just watch and make sure you see what's going on. The the operation that Jesus describes here is a top-notch, first-class enterprise that, that he's describing. The men who work here have everything they need to grow and produce and process wine. The master of this vineyard travels to a far country. And so he leases his prized vineyard out to vine dressers so they can cultivate it, so they can keep it working. And the deal is you get to work the land and you can produce the wine and you can have a great bounty. You can, you can get the harvest, but you have to pay the master a percentage of the fruit. The master, the landowner, gets so many bottles of wine because he owns everything that is the payment. So, as expected, when vintage time drew near, the master sent some of his servants to go collect what is owed to him, but the renters refuse to pay. They take the servants of the master and they beat one, they kill another, and they stone the third. There's an increasing level of brutality and violence here from from beating a guy, you know, ganging up on him and really injuring him uh, really beating him up to killing the next guy with some kind of weapon, a spear or a sword, to stoning the third one. What are you doing if you're stoning someone? Well, you're acting like a civil authority, right? You're acting like an executioner. These vine dressers are assuming an authority that's not given to them. And here's the crazy part the master responds to that by sending more servants, more than the first time. And they keep beating them, and they keep killing them, and they keep stoning the servants that the master sends. And then the master says, well, maybe if I send my son, maybe they'll respect my son. And when the vine dressers see the son coming, they say, ah, this is the heir. I know who that is. That's the son. Let us kill him and seize the inheritance. So they take him and cast him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Now you're sitting and listening to this story and you think, has this master lost his mind? Who would keep sending servants to be mistreated and killed by these thugs and these gangsters? You know what I would do? I would appeal to the authorities to go send a posse, go send an army and kill those guys and clean them out of there, get rid of them. These guys aren't bind dressers, They're, they're criminals. And so why would he send his son? Would you send your son into that environment? Doesn't he know what's going to happen? And so you think this story is ridiculous. Nobody would ever do this. But Jesus has them right where he wants them when he asked the question, verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy these wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons. That's exactly right. That's what I would do too. You got it. Do you remember when David was in deep sin with Bathsheba and he had Uriah, her husband, killed, and the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story about a poor man who had a sheep that he treated as a pet, and a rich man who had many flocks and herds came and took and killed the poor man's sheep. And you remember how David responded? He said, said, that man shall surely die. And Nathan said, well, you are the man. Uh, Same thing is going on here. Jesus is provoking them to respond with this sense of justice and retribution for the murderers who would kill the servants and who would dare to kill the master's own son. And Jesus is provoking them to see, you're, guys, you're the murderers. You're the criminals, you're the thugs, they're not sons, they're not servants, they're delinquent renters, and they're the ones who are about to be evicted. In this parable, Jesus just illustrates so masterfully the whole history of Israel. And if you know Isaiah's work, you, you hear echoes of something Isaiah said. I have to read this. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, if you want to join me there or just listen, listen closely, because Isaiah's song of the vineyard sounds so much like Jesus's parable. Uh, It's uh, it's stunning. Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Isaiah's song is speaking about the quality of the fruit. Jesus' parable is talking about the wickedness of the vine dressers. but the same thing. He comes looking for fruit and he doesn't get it for one reason or the other. The difference uh, is in Isaiah's day, the fruit is bad. In Jesus' day, the the fields are white to harvest. The the, the fruit is good among the people, even the harlots and tax collectors obeying and believing. The people, the, the chief priests, the leaders are the rotten ones. The leaders are the criminals. In both In both cases, though, the same question rings through the centuries from Isaiah's song, what more could I have done for my vineyard? I I put you on fine real estate. I put you on fertile ground. I hedged you in. I built you a tower and a wine press. You had everything you needed for success. If you asked for something else, I would have given it to you. If you prayed, I would have given you whatever you needed. There is no defect in the Lord's provision for them. He gave them everything to put them in a perfect situation in order for them to give him the fruit that he was looking for and He sent them his servants continually. In Jeremiah, the Lord says, from the time you came up out of Egypt, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. The Lord God sent his servants to his vineyard looking for fruit day after day after day, prophet after prophet after prophet. My servants who came to you seeking fruit and you ridiculed them and you muzzled them and you falsely accused them, you exiled them. You starved them. You insulted them and slapped them in the face like the prophet Micaiah. You you put them in stocks and kept them in chains and you put them in a dungeon and lowered them down into a cistern like Jeremiah. You stoned them to death like Zechariah. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in half. John the Baptist was beheaded. God kept sending his servants just like the master in the parable and they kept being abused and hated and mocked and ignored and ridiculed and killed by the rulers of Israel, assuming that they were acting on God's behalf, assuming that they were doing God a favor. And ultimately God sends to them his own son in the sincere hope that they will hear him. Now notice in this parable, Jesus distinguishes himself from the prophets. He's not just another prophet, he's the son. He's the son who comes in this parable. And Israel, rather than hearing the son, rather than receiving and obeying the son and giving honor to the son as the honor due to the father, they take him out of the vineyard and they kill him. That's exactly what they do. They take him out of the city and they kill him outside the city. So what is to be the punishment for this? Again, leaders of Israel, chief priests, what is to be the punishment for this, you experts in God's law? What should happen to these murderers and thugs and gangsters? What should the master do? Well, they say it. He should destroy them miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him his fruit. Okay, you got it. That's exactly what's going to happen. You just wrote the script for the next 40 years. Verse 42 Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's from Psalm 118, which the children were singing in the temple when Jesus arrived in the, in the temple. The children know that Psalm. The children understand it, the children can sing it. The chief priests, if they know it, they're ignoring it. They're not paying attention to it at all. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, It will grind him to powder. Jesus himself, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. He's the foundation which they have rejected. He is not a usurper of the temple's authority. He is the temple itself. Jesus is the place where God's blessing and his presence rests. He is the one you come to for cleansing and healing and forgiveness and to restore your fellowship with God. Jesus is also that stone, that altar stone that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about in his dream. Remember that altar stone cut without hands that pulverizes all the kingdoms and the empires of the world. So Jesus says, everybody must be dashed against this rock. I am that rock. I am that cornerstone. Everybody must be dashed against this rock. Everybody's got to deal with this rock. Either you are broken on me Either you are humbled, you die to your sins, you crucify the old man, and you let me put you back together so you can walk in newness of life. You either get broken by me or you get crushed by me. You get, if you resist, you get ground to powder, you get pulverized. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, these men to whom Jesus is saying these things, they may be wicked, but they're not stupid. They're evil, but they're not dummies they know what Jesus is talking about. They, they hear this and they say, uh, I think he's talking about us. I think that's who he's talking about. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. That's, that's pretty astute. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Again, even in this, they're, they're not trying to do what's right They're trying to do what is safe, what is politically expedient. So they're not gonna make a move against Jesus until they orchestrate events so that the people are behind them and they can please the people by taking Jesus out. Well, what do we learn from this exchange? Let's quickly just process this whole little conversation here. What does Jesus reveal to us about the Father and about himself and his work? First of all, we know from this, we know that God is serious about obedience. The Lord expects fruit from his vineyard. He requires obedience from his sons. The Christian life is not simply about affirming some intellectual proposition and going and living however you want to live. The Christian life is not about having an emotional experience and then go do whatever you want to do. The primary goal of the Christian life is not the pursuit of your private individual happiness and comfort, and that you never have any loss or suffering or pain. That's not the point of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is that you seek first to please God in everything, with everything, no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter what the consequences that you seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ and that you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The father expects that when he says, son, go and do the work that I've given you to do, go to to my vineyard today, he expects that the response will be, I go, sir, and that his children go and do the work he's given them to do. And when he comes to collect the fruit, he expects there to be fruit to collect. So is, is there any significant fruit of the Spirit being manifested in your life right now. Let's just do a little self diagnosis here as we think about the Master coming to look for this fruit. Does he get anything? Does he get anything out of us? What, what is there? In what area are you growing as a follower of Jesus? Where are you growing? What sins are you conquering? Where have you seen victory in overcoming wicked behavior? and unbiblical thinking? Can you point to anything? Can you mark anything? Where are you going out of your way to serve other people and to give yourself in a way that reflects the love of the Savior? Are you exercising self-control? Are you exercising, and I'm talking about godly, grace-reliant, Holy Spirit-dependent self-control, self-discipline over your body, over your habits, over your words, over your thoughts. You see, the father expects obedience. The master expects there to be fruit. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that he has given us everything we need, everything we require in order to return to him the fruit that he is seeking. These murderous vine dressers were judged and this vineyard that Isaiah describes, this vineyard that Jesus describes, has indeed been handed over to a nation that will bear fruit. The church is that new people. The church is that new nation. It's been taken from them and given to us, which means that you find yourself in a vineyard planted in fertile soil. You are in a choice land. You are hedged in under a tower of protection, supplied with every tool and every amenity that is needed to produce the rich wine of obedience, given everything you need. And even the suffering, even the loss, even the hardship, even the conflict that you experience is the perfect soil for the specific fruit that God is expecting. He wants a vintage of wine that is only produced out of your life that comes out of the challenges that He has given you right now. The, the hardship, the difficulty, the loss, uh, all of that is given to you to produce the wine, the fruit that he is looking for. Now you're tempted to believe, and you're often tempted to think that you're in a terrible set of circumstances that prevent you from bearing good fruit. That if only something were different, then, then I could produce good fruit. You're tempted to believe that the problem is not with you. The problem is not with your attitude. The problem is not with your laziness. The problem is not with your disobedience. The problem is with your situation. The problem is with your environment. That's where the problem is. No, I'm good, I'm fine. It's all these people I have to put up with. It's the times that I live in. It's the dark conspiracies of evil forces that are all stacked up against me. That's what my problem is. It's not, that's all a lie. It's all a lie and you need to call it a lie and you need to remind yourself and everyone around you that it's a lie. The Lord says, you're my vineyard. What else do you need? What else do you need? I've given you everything you need for fruitfulness. I've given you everything you need to obey me. You are well equipped. You are stocked up. What else can I do for you? What more can I do for my vineyard? What can I, ask me, ask me and I'll give it to you. You have everything you need. You have God's authoritative word in which is everything necessary for life and godliness. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead You have the church, you have the body and the bride of Christ, what else do you need? You can sing with Psalm 19, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You have been given everything you need to please God. So the second thing we learn. The third thing, the last thing we learn is that the Lord is patient, but sin has an expiration date. The Lord is patient. He doesn't deal with us like we deserve. He sends us opportunity after opportunity to repent, to receive his servant, to listen to his prophet. And he keeps on, consider how patiently he bore with Israel through all these centuries. You and I are not that patient with each other. We're not that patient with our spouses. We're not that patient with our children. We get fed up easily, but the master did not. He sent servant after servant after servant, even though they were abusing them. Think of how patient and kind God has been with our nation. How long will he put up with our rebellion? our refusal to acknowledge Jesus as king over everything? How long is he gonna put up with and bear with abortion and fornication and perversion and greed and warmongering and every form of idolatry? How long is he gonna put up with this? Why doesn't he turn this whole continent, sea to shining sea, into a great smoking crater? He could, and he probably should. If, If we were talking about pure justice, he should. Why doesn't he do that? Because he's patient. He's patient. He's giving us time to repent. But the day will come when it will all be over. Time will be up. If we do not turn from our wicked ways, he will destroy this place miserably. I'm just borrowing their language. He will destroy this place miserably and turn our land over to better vine dressers. So don't ever believe. Don't ever believe that because there are not immediate consequences to your sin, that God is okay with it. Don't ever think, don't ever think that because there is an instant judgment, we're fine, it's all good, God doesn't care. The consequences are not always instant because God is patient. He is merciful and gracious and abounding in mercy. But the day comes when the bill is due. So, repent now while there's still time. Commit now with your whole heart. The father says, go son into the vineyard and you respond to him with an enthusiastic and sincere, I go, sir, and then go to work to give him the fruit from your life that he is due. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us. We thank you for putting us in a well watered, rich soiled vineyard. You have given us everything we need to please you, to bear the fruit that you are seeking. So we pray that by your spirit, we would give you the obedience and the honor and the praise that you are due. We ask you to strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to that end, in Jesus' name, amen.